Hello, and welcome to Physical Attraction, the show that explains physics one chat up line at a time. The show that explains physics one chat up line at a time. This episode is going to be about radiation. So, just to clarify, exposure to radiation does not give superpowers. The only superpower it would really give you is being ill and maybe even dead. So, Bruce Banner, Daredevil, Captain Atom, dead, 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 and rather horribly. Okay, now we've got that out of the way. What is radiation? Well, it really, really depends on how you want to look at it. Sometimes it's helpful to think about electromagnetic radiation as particles, photons, that swoop around and bash into atoms and walls and so on. Sometimes it's helpful to think of it as ripples in the electrical and magnetic fields that surround us and permeate us all the time. Disturbances in the force, if you like. Sometimes it's helpful to think about it as another form of energy, just like matter. Atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, or particles. That's matter. But radiation is also a form of storing energy. In reality, it's all of these things. Physics will never exactly correspond to reality. So when someone says something like, Electromagnetic radiation is made up of photons, and these are like little billiard balls that fly around and hit stuff. It's a useful description sometimes, and can help us understand sometimes, but it's incomplete. And that's okay, because a complete description is probably beyond the realms of human comprehension anyway. We need our analogies to guide us through the world of physics. One thing we can be pretty clear about is that radiation is a spectrum, and that spectrum depends on the wavelength of the radiation. The longest wavelength of radiation is radio waves. Then anything from about 100 centimeters to about 0.1 centimeters in wavelength is microwaves. Anything smaller than a millimeter but bigger than 700 nanometers is infrared radiation. Now a nanometer is one over a billion meters, so it's a very tiny unit of measurement. So that bit of the spectrum that's between one millimeter and 700 nanometers, that's infrared radiation, and that's the bit of the spectrum that we feel as heat. Then there's the magical tiny bit between 700 nanometers and 390 nanometers that our eyes are actually sensitive to, and we call that visible light. So at the long wavelength end of the spectrum, you have red light, and then at the short wavelength end of the spectrum, you have blue light, and everything else in between. Then, if you get even smaller, UV, X-rays, and anything with a really tiny wavelength are gamma rays. As the wavelength goes down, energy goes up. So the gamma rays are the most energetic, while the radio is the least energetic. But it's important to remember that these subdivisions are totally down to us humans, as in they're completely arbitrary and convenient to us. There are all kinds of ways you could subdivide the scale if you wanted to. But in reality, it's just one continuous scale. It's all electromagnetic radiation, and we've chosen to kind of split it down the middle in some convenient ranges, and the exact middle range is just the tiny range that our eyes are sensitive to that we can actually detect. Now, the different wavelengths of radiation will interact differently with matter. So gamma rays, for example, are a very energetic, very short wavelength, and they're usually absorbed by matter, while radio waves can pass straight through it most of the time. But a radio wave isn't fundamentally a different thing than a gamma ray, it's just a question of energy and the wavelength of the radiation. So you can talk about discovering radiation, and Pierre and Marie Curie are rightly praised for doing that, 
but what they really discovered was the bits of the radiation that we couldn't already see. But what does it mean to say that radiation is emitted or radiation is absorbed? How does it get made? How does it get destroyed? There are two main ways that energy gets converted into radiation from other forms. One is when matter collides with antimatter. We won't be dealing with that so much today because I think there's a whole episode in antimatter that we can get into. But when that does happen, a matter particle can collide with an antimatter particle. They annihilate each other and two photons get produced. So the energy that used to be in the matter is turned into radiation. The other way is via interactions with matter. So one thing we know about electrical charges, like the charge on an electron or a proton, is that when you accelerate them, radiation is produced. One way to think about this that I think is kind of helpful is, is the following. So imagine you've got an electron. We know that it has an electric field around it. In this field, it pushes away negative charges and it pulls in positive charges. The negative charge on the electron means that it will push away negative things and pull in positive things. So we can imagine to help us the field lines that spread out from the electron like the spokes of a wheel. And that's what Michael Faraday imagined when he came up with the idea of fields. Now imagine wiggling the electron back and forth. All those field lines have to point at the electron even as you change its position. But special relativity tells us that no information can travel faster than the speed of light. That no information can travel faster than the speed of electromagnetic radiation. There's going to be a relativity episode soon as well, so hopefully we'll get onto this then. That means that a long, long way from the electron that you're wiggling, the electric field can't know that you've moved the electron. Otherwise, information has travelled faster than the speed of light. So the information about the fact that the electron is changing position has to travel outwards, like a ripple, at the speed of light. And that, basically, is your electromagnetic radiation. So you can have this amazing picture when you're looking at a sunset or someone cute or a garbage can full of rubbish. You're actually receiving, at the speed of light, live up-to-date information about wiggling electrons. That's what's bombarding us all the time, even when we close our eyes. The more energetic the process, the faster you wiggle the electrons, the greater the frequency of the electrons' vibrations. And that's basically how electromagnetic radiation gets all of its different frequencies and its different wavelengths. The wavelength times the frequency is always the speed of light. So if you have a bigger wavelength, you have a smaller frequency. And if you have a bigger frequency, you must have a smaller wavelength. And so it'll have more energy if the electrons are wiggling faster and if the frequency is higher. So this simple picture of wiggling electrons and the time that it takes for that information to spread out across the universe can actually explain quite a lot about how radiation works. So in atoms, the electrons are held in energy levels, and because of quantum mechanics, these are discrete energy levels. This means that the energy can only have certain values, and that the gaps between energy levels have certain fixed values too. It's kind of like the rungs on a ladder. An electron can't be halfway between a rung, it's got to jump straight down from one to the other. But this isn't a very good ladder, because the gaps can all be different. If a photon hits the electron, it can tickle it just right to give it the energy to jump up to a higher level, going up one rung on the ladder. And then, after a while, the electron will wiggle its way back down into the ground state, and release a photon again. So this is why objects have different colours depending on what they're made of. It all depends on the energy levels of the atoms, which tell us how the electrons are going to wiggle, and that tells us what colour light they can absorb, and which colours of light will get reflected. 
So one exciting thing to point out about this picture of radiation is that there are lots of other ways that atoms can get into excited states, not just by absorbing a photon. One of these is collisions with other atoms. And since everything that has a temperature has molecules that are moving around very quickly and colliding with each other, this means that everything with a temperature is constantly exciting some of its atoms into excited states. And depending on that temperature and how hard the collisions are, those atoms will emit different frequencies of radiation. So you're emitting radiation right now, sitting in your chair, because all of the atoms that make you up are constantly colliding with each other, they're exciting the electrons into higher energy levels, and then their electrons are wiggling down and releasing the photons of different frequencies. So you're radiating right now. It's just that it's all in the infrared, because that's what room temperature and body temperature correspond to. Unless you're on fire, in which case you might be emitting in the visible, but you probably have bigger problems. And this gives rise to this episode's chat-up line. Are you emitting thermal electromagnetic radiation in the visible spectrum? Because you look unusually hot. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Restraining orders at the ready. So that's electromagnetic radiation, but things get a little bit more complicated. One of the issues that I think is kind of a bar to understanding science is the fact that a lot of the nomenclature, a lot of the terms and names that we use, are quite historical, and we're stuck with them now, even though some of them are a little bit misleading from time to time. So, in the grand definition of things that were termed radiation, and things that are called radioactive, not everything that's emitted is electromagnetic radiation. Sometimes it's particle radiation. So if a nucleus, the centre of an atom made up of protons and neutrons, if a nucleus is unstable, there are various different ways that it can change to become more stable. Sometimes the neutrons and protons just rearrange themselves in the nucleus, and that way the configuration reduces energy, and the extra energy that's reduced is emitted as a gamma ray. That's what's called gamma radiation. Sometimes a neutron in the nucleus will turn into a proton and emit an electron, which is what's called beta radiation. And sometimes, especially if it's really heavy, the whole nucleus can just say, oh, for crying out loud, and kick out two neutrons and two protons, all stuck together. And that's alpha radiation. Now, only one of those is a photon. Only one of those is electromagnetic radiation. But they all get lumped together at radiation. And it's for historical reasons, really. When all of these things were first discovered, we knew that there were certain substances that must be emitting something, different kinds of particles, because we could see their effects. So for example, X-rays lit up the coating on some glass, and that's how they were discovered, and Marie Curie discovered types of radiation from some of the elements because of how it affected photographic plates. Later on, Rutherford realised that there was some radiation that could make it through longer distances of material than other types, and he called the stuff that was long-distance radiation that could get through lots of material, that's beta radiation. And the stuff that could barely make it through anything was alpha radiation. Now, we know now that this is because alpha has twice the charge of beta, and so it gets stopped dead by electromagnetic interactions more quickly. So, we knew that they were different, but we didn't know what the things were, and that's why we're stuck with this alpha, beta, gamma, even though we know that alpha is a helium nucleus, and beta is an electron, and gamma is a type of electromagnetic radiation. So, I think a lot of people get slightly concerned when you tell them that massive amounts of radiation are passing through their bodies all the time, 24-7, and that they're in a sense radioactive and emitting infrared radiation. 
But of course, this is where it gets confusing, because only certain kinds are actually harmful to humans. The difference, as you might expect, is one of energy. So some types of radiation are going to be strong enough to knock electrons away from atoms entirely, and we call that ionising radiation. So alpha particles, beta particles, gamma rays, x-rays, and some UV rays can do this as well. An atom is electrically neutral. Its protons, which have positive charge, are cancelled out by its electrons, which have negative charge. So that means that if you put a big electric field near an atom, although the atom might rearrange itself, it shouldn't move too far. But when an atom is ionised, one electron is removed, and so it does have an overall charge. And this is what makes it harmful to humans, because once it has charge, it can start interacting via the electromagnetic force in a much more powerful way, and it can destroy chemical bonds, pull apart cells, and generally wreak havoc. So, this is what makes things interesting. You could stand in front of a massive radio wave generator, and it wouldn't make a difference. Even if there's loads of energy in the radio waves, because a single photon will not have enough energy to knock an electron away from an atom. And, because an electron can only absorb one photon at a time, if it's the wrong frequency of light and has the wrong energy, then regardless of how powerful the radio wave is, it can never knock that electron away. So, no amount of radio radiation is going to be harmful to you, because it won't be able to ionise the atoms that make you up. An alpha particle source is dangerous, but alpha particles can be stopped stone dead by a piece of paper, so they're easy to handle. But the reason that an alpha particle source is dangerous is that those alpha particles do have the energy to knock away an electron from an atom, ionising it. And although it can be stopped by a piece of paper, if you eat a source of alpha particles, it will kill you. This is exactly what happened to Alexander Litvinenko, the Russian dissident. He was poisoned by an alpha emitter, polonium-210, which was slipped into his tea, and there was nothing that the doctors could do. Getting into his life story is a whole other rabbit hole, but it's very interesting if you want some Wikipedia to trawl. Theta radiation is also ionising, and that can penetrate quite far because it's not got as big a charge, but a thin sheet of metal should stop most of it. And we actually use this to our advantage, so people do. You can, If you want to make sure that a sheet metal is of a uniform thickness, you can stick a beta source on top of it and a detector underneath. And if you measure how much passes through, that can tell you how thick the sheet of metal is. Similar techniques are used to track leaks in oil pipes and so on underground. But a gamma ray source is ionising and it's highly penetrative. So even if there are much less energy in the gamma ray source, which means that there might be fewer photons, the individual photons have more energy, and so it's much more harmful for you. And because the gamma rays aren't charged, it takes much more material to stop it. You need thick layers of lead or some other dense material to stop gamma radiation. So, when you have things that are protected from radiation, the really big concern is this gamma radiation. And disposing of the gamma ray material is by far the most difficult part of the job for people who are dealing with nuclear waste from nuclear power plants. So here's a bit of a tangent and something that's always interested me. Nuclear waste is going to remain dangerous for thousands of years. And we have no idea what human civilization is going to look like in thousands of years. After all, no human single civilization or society has lasted for thousands of years, no language has lasted for thousands of years uh, as the predominant language spoken by the culture anyway. I guess there are still people who can speak Latin and Sumerian and so on, but they're not predominant. And so we don't know if in a thousand years, ten thousand years, 
they'll speak the same language as we do now if they'll even understand the same symbols. So as well as physicists, people who dispose nuclear waste are employing the services of psychologists and linguists. It's a question of how do you communicate a very simple message, please don't dig here and for the love of god don't eat anything, in a way that will remain culturally relevant to humans thousands of years from now. And it's difficult because after all, when we crack open the pyramids, we don't understand or just ignore the many curses that say anyone who does so is going to be doomed. Indeed, if you go on too much about how dreadful it is, people will probably think you're hiding something special. That's one aspect of human nature that I don't think will change. We, we really hate doing what we're told. But what if some apocalyptic event means that future humans forget all about the nuclear waste that's been buried and they forget everything they know about radiation? And so we can't even tell them there's nuclear waste down here and digging here is probably a bad idea. So they put notices down in every conceivable language, in case civilization manages to remember Esperanto while forgetting everything else. But they need to do other measures as well. You might think, just put a skull and crossbones, that's pretty threatening. But it was pointed out that for some people, this is associated with Latin American Day of the Dead festivities, so they might just think that this is the way to a party. What if human civilization, in a hundred thousand years, is dramatically obsessed with pirates? And they see the Jolly Roger sign and think that it's buried treasure. So the best solution that we have at the moment is an information centre, with a series of graphic videos that shows the effects of radiation on the human body. So that way humans a hundred thousand years from now will be creeped out and a little bit clued up as to the general message of bad. Whether they're super advanced and they know exactly what we're talking about, or if they've regressed into cavemen. It's a pretty haunting idea though. Visceral warnings buried underground to save us from our former selves to tell them that this is a bad and shameful place, with no buried treasure or anything else worthwhile, and we still have no idea whether that kind of warning would work. So doses of ionising radiation in the human body are measured in sieverts. They can also be measured in bananas. Now bananas contain potassium, and some potassium is naturally radioactive. So every time you eat a banana you're slightly irradiated. It's a really tiny effect, hardly likely to make a difference to your health. In fact, you'd need to eat 35 million bananas to die of radiation poisoning from their potassium. Obviously, eating 35 million bananas has its own problems. In fact, 35 million bananas would weigh around 3.5 million kilos, which is easily enough to crush you to death. In case you have enemies, a quick google of the historical technique of crushing people, which has done nothing to help my search history or Amazon recommendations, suggests that you only need 3,200 bananas to crush someone to death. So, you know, order them in bulk. But the banana equivalent dose, as it's called, has actually helped allay a lot of public fears about the radiation. The Three Mile Island meltdown, which is one of the worst meltdowns we've actually had since we started using nuclear power, um, that only exposed people to 800 banana equivalent doses who live nearby. And that doesn't sound nearly as bad. So I hope that I've cleared up the distinction between electromagnetic radiation and the other types of radiation. We were mostly talking at the start about the electromagnetic spectrum this episode, but I couldn't title it radiation without explaining the difference. But the last thing I want to talk about in terms of radiation is more particle radiation. It's cosmic rays. Because the Earth is being bombarded all the time by cosmic rays from unknown sources in outer space, and some of them have ridiculous amounts of energy. These are both electromagnetic and particle kinds of radiation. One particle that hit the upper atmosphere was so energetic that it had around 48 joules of energy, 
so physicists dubbed it the Oh My God particle for obvious reasons. And they got very excited. What does it mean for a nucleus to have 48 joules of energy? Well, first off, the thing is basically moving at the speed of light. Nothing with mass can ever move at exactly the speed of light because of special relativity, but this is as close as anything with mass is ever likely to get. If it raced a light beam, it would take 21,500 years for the light beam to pull ahead by a millimetre. 48 joules is about as much energy as there is in a baseball thrown at 60 miles an hour, but it's all packed into an atomic nucleus that's a million 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 times smaller than a baseball. The thing has so much energy that the second it hits the atmosphere, it disintegrates into a massive shower of particles, so astronomers have to detect all of the particles in that shower and reconstruct it to figure out what energy the original particle had. So if you're like me, a couple of questions come to mind. One of them is that if these energies are so huge, why can't we use them instead of the Large Hadron Collider? And indeed, the energies are much, much larger than those in the LHC. But the problem is that we can't predict when and where these high-power cosmic ray events are going to occur and stick our sensors there, because they're so incredibly rare. An event comparable to the Oh My God particle might only occur every few years. And the other problem is that not much energy can go into making new particles. Collisions have to conserve energy, and they have to conserve momentum as well. And so, when you have a super high energy cosmic ray smashing into the atmosphere, which is basically sitting still compared to the cosmic ray, whatever it hits has to carry off a lot of energy in recoil. This isn't so in the LHC, where two beams of protons whizzing around smash into each other with exactly the same energy, so there's no recoil required. The other question that comes to mind is, well, why on earth did the particle get this kind of energy? And the answer to that is that we really have no idea. There are some candidates, like the magnetars with really strong magnetic fields, like those we talked about in the episode on stellar formation. Or maybe at the super energetic, super massive black holes at the heart of galaxies, they might just be able to accelerate cosmic rays to this supermassive energy. Supernovae could also be a good candidate, because they're very energetic. But the reality is that it's a total mystery. Nobody knows how these particles come to have these insane amounts of energy. What we do know is that somewhere out there, something wild is going on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. If you've got any questions about physics or about the episodes, please, please send them to me. You can find us on physicspod at outlook.com, that's the email address, or physicspod on Twitter, uh, and uh, we're active on both of those, so if anyone has any questions, then please send them over. And uh, until then, talk nerdy to me. Hi folks, wanna hear something funny?